Hello and welcome to episode number 85 of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and it is my unexpected and delighted pleasure to bring you this amazing interview that I had with a group that I have dubbed the Unsinkable Team. I'm not guaranteeing that name will stick. I don't even know if this means that they will unfriend me at some point for using the name Unsinkable Team, but it's the name that works for me because they are the masterminds behind the future of storytelling. We're talking about audio drama, and we're talking about it with writer, co-director, and executive producer, John Mawson, co-director and executive producer, Misha Crosby, and from B7 Media, producer and director, Andrew Mark Sewell, and voice actor and producer extraordinaire, Helen Quigley. Also joining me again, writer, actor, director, Jack Bowman, offering up his unique ability to wrangle all of these amazing, talented people onto one podcast for one amazing conversation. And through it, we get to discover, you and I together, what it is that was necessary for this story to be captured, put down into a script, brought to life, using sound to tell the story, and how one of the most important components is the theater of the mind, our imagination, and how that theater of imagination can bring to life this wonderful story. Unsinkable features amazing, talented actors like Brian Cox, John Malkovich, and more. But for my conversation, I love talking with the people who pieced it all together. Join me now for an amazing interview with the Unsinkable team. Lord. And I'm also going to say, Jack, please be aware of the fact that since you have that amazing article with you, there is something of a responsibility to include that, however you feel appropriate throughout the recording. I mean, you masterfully demonstrated how you could just raise it, as Misha said, shift the camera to you and then make us all feel jealous in the process. Okay. You can utilize yeah. the bottle as well. I have, I have the utmost. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I used to be an actor. Give me a prop. It's great. <laughs> uh, also, if everyone's okay with it and the recording quality is fine, I've been turning some of these podcasts into a YouTube uh, as well, just something so everyone can see the video. So if everyone's okay, just give me a thumbs up with that. That would be something. I, haven't got, I, didn't, I didn't book the makeup artist. Yeah. Um, I didn't shave. I thought this was all I noticed. <laughs> Yeah, but the fans, they're going to love this. It's like raw, real life, honest moments. Oh, you know. life, in, life in lockdown, yeah. Right. <laughs> they're going to love it. Uh, with that, I'm just going to simply say that this is another episode of Storytelling with Seth. And I am a very grateful host who was lucky enough to sit down with Jack Bowman a little while back now and learn about all of the wonders that he's doing with audio and uh, a hint, some teases about this amazing team, which he has thankfully brought on with me for this call today. I am with, as I'm dubbing it right now, the Unsinkable team. And I have with me each of them. I'm going to say their names, allow them to say hello. And then I'm going to do something a little bit fun with the uh, introduction. So first off, Jack, welcome back. How are you, sir? Thank you. Play pleasure to be back. Thank you. Oh. Uh, happy to have you back and I'm happy that you brought such an entertaining crew there's been like 10 minutes of like audio gold that I did not record and I've told them they've inspired me now to just hit the record button and make people sign releases like weeks in advance so I can capture the fun you guys were just displaying for me. just think of the repeat phase 
<laughs> now, lovely enough is that I can just transition with that. Who was that voice we just heard? Well, that would have to be Mr. Andrew Mark Sewell. Andrew, how are you, sir? I'm, I'm very good, and, and congratulations on pronouncing my surname correctly. I, I stuttered. You might have heard a hesitating pause. I, I thought that was for dramatic effect. Uh, you know, the best thing is, until I gave myself away, it could have been. It really, really <laughs> could have. Next, I have with us Misha Crosby. Misha, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Zeth. Ah, cheers. Pleasure. Thank you so much for joining. Um, as well, Thank I also you. have... Oh, my pleasure, man. Uh, this is going to be fun. I also have with us Helen Quigley. Helen, how are you? Hello, I'm very good. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. And I also have with us Mr. John Lawson. Well, thank you for having me on, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to go so well. <laughs> this, this is going to go really well. In fact, the, the next part of it is I, I have to think about how it is I tell my parents my name is now Rachel. This will get interesting, mm. but I can I can deal with that later. What I'd like to do next, just for fun, is to let you know that I've already spoken with Jack. So we're going to do a, a little bit of a fun uh, introduction game here. I'm going to introduce Jack, who, as I mentioned, I was lucky enough to uh, talk with before. We talked about audio production. We talked about uh, his time, you know, as an actor transitioning into writing and directing and how that's turned into audio productions that he's now involved with, uh, everything from audio marvels to so much more. Jack, what I'm gonna do is ask you to introduce John, who will introduce Misha, who will introduce Andrew, who will introduce Helen. And in this way, I'm curious to hear what each of you has to say as an introduction for the person who will next be speaking. Sound good to everyone. Yep. If you'd let I think I did well the night before, it would have been much more preferable. <laughs> See, I thought about that. I thought about that. And then, oh, no, no, I'm not saying there would have been bribery involved. It would have been, it would have been a very different intro, but no, all good. I understand. And I would love to imagine that I am above bribery. In fact, I think, I'll pause I think for Jack, a moment. I think Jack's going to dodge the bullet about not getting one of us introducing him. I think well, actually, a cunning plan. The, the fun part might be is if at the end, Helen, you choose to give, you know, anything I might have missed about Jack. Oh, good. Yeah. Wrap okay. up. Yeah. Yeah. Always <laughs> leave the door open. Mm. Always leave the door open. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> at least that's the thought. So, Jack, if you would, please, could you introduce for us, John Mawson? What what should we know about he and the uh, unsinkable team? Well, the first thing you should know is of all the people here, I know John the best. So as a random lottery goes, that's perfect. Um, so John, I've known uh, about 12 years now. I think we were both less gray back in the day. Um, so me and John uh, were both actors and uh, we met in a cast series of casting director workshops in London. And uh, at the end of it, uh, me and John were both off to Edinburgh and we both promised to go see each other's shows. And uh, John was doing um, the Pink Floyd show, wasn't it? Where you were playing the, the host. Yep. And, along, and then John, to his credit, came to see my show, which was terrible and involved me cross-dressing as a, uh, as a police officer who wore uh, tights. But at the end of it, John said to me, he said, you know what? I think you should join my agency. And lo and behold, uh, about four weeks later, I had an interview. Uh, John brought me aboard his agents and uh, we spent about two and a half years working in a cooperative agency, which is a 
uh, type of agency where actors represent other actors. And um, during that time, John said, I'm going to get myself to America. And you know what? It only took him nine months to do it. So before you knew it, boom, John was away, off in LA. And uh, when I got my call up to go over to LA last year, I reached out to John and that led to a whole unsinkable project sort of slowly coming together as a podcast. So that, that's, that's Mr. Mawson, a man who puts his mind to things and gets it done. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And Thank you, John, Jack. You're now welcome. I'm going to ask you to introduce Misha, if you wouldn't mind, my friend. So <laughs> following on from that story, uh, I then, so I moved to Los Angeles in uh, uh, 10 years ago the next week. And uh, one of the first people I met out here was Misha. And we just knew each other a little bit socially. Uh, but I then started to cast um, a short film that I was making, that I wanted to make. And um, I thought of Misha for one of the roles. And um, lo and behold, there he is. Oh, yeah, gosh. There is a very young Misha. Well, very young, 10 years ago. So I'm trying to get to it without. Uh, it's a lovely shot. So let me jump back. It's trying to do it in such a way that I get out of the way. There we go. You certainly look very young. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so we made that short film, which did pretty well. It, it won some awards in the, in, on the circuit, and it was accepted by BAFTA for consideration. And since then, we've been good friends, and we worked together on a couple of projects that he and Michael Jarrett, who actually was the director of that film, uh, were, were putting together. Uh, and uh, culminating in a film called Green Rush, which is now available on Amazon. Um, and I'm one of co-exec producer on that and uh, um, also do some voice on it. And Misha is one of the producers and director, uh, producers and is in it, one of the leads. Um, and so when Jack came over this time last year, um, Misha, mentioned, I mentioned it to Misha and he mentioned that he was doing some voice work uh, with someone who was about to be introduced, I think a certain Andrew. So I said, oh, you should meet Jack. He's coming over to do some, uh, to be on a panel about uh, podcasts or audio work. So we met up and had dinner together uh, a year ago yesterday, I think it was, two days ago. And Jack mentioned that um, there was a strong demand for, uh, for IP, uh, and I mentioned Unsinkable. So uh, Misha and I then started to work on it. So that's how I know Misha and that's how he got involved. Perfect introduction. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and now Misha, if you wouldn't mind, could you introduce for everyone uh, a little bit about Mr. Andrew Mark Sewell? Andrew Mark Sewell. So Andrew and I go back uh, even further, I think, than... Um, uh, than uh, me and John, we definitely do because I knew uh, I knew Andrew before I uh, before I even came to the states. Uh, I had met Andrew through uh, my old UK agent uh, Emma Angers, uh, who was um, who was out on one of her many nights during the week, and uh, Andrew uh, Andrew was probably warming the uh, the rooftop at Century, if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh, I uh, you know we got chatting at the time. You know I uh, I had you know, not envisaged doing anything other than, uh, than acting. Uh, I think, um, I may have, uh, I may have already, um, 
done a done a UK show Holby City at the time, but I, I can't remember. It was certainly very early on, and Andrew was was heavily involved in uh, in radio and audio, and we um, we just got on very well, and um, we we remained friends for you know for for the, certainly that period I was in uh, in the UK, but then he actually came out to Los Angeles probably oh, he'll probably have to, to to correct me on this but it was around sort of 2011 maybe 2000 maybe 2012 and uh, he was actually shopping the rights um for uh for a, for a big project he had i believe it was Blake uh Blake 7 he was uh, he was looking yeah, to was. um <clears throat> yeah he was looking to uh to see if he could uh, exploit those rights with uh, some of the studios over here for uh, for film and television and you know we we kept in contact even then through through years years after Andrew continued to uh, to build B7 and uh, it's you know it's now got a multitude of titles as uh, you know they'll uh, they'll let you know almost on a daily basis they seem to have a new one rolling out and when um, when it came to uh, to this as John said you know him and I had been working on it uh, working on it to uh, to take what John had initially written. Which was this? Uh, uh, which was initially a, a feature film uh, and a very good one uh, that then evolved into you know possible you know three part TV series, I believe. And then from from the from the the last scripts that were around, we went and um, with uh, with some of Jack's advice as well, uh, started converting them into uh, some some audio scripts. Uh, with uh, that were were self-contained in a sort of uh, twenty-minute uh, twenty-minute arc, and Andrew had had uh, at that point come uh, come into the fold because we talked about um, having uh, having a UK partnership involved uh, as well, and so it uh, it all kind of came together from all these different angles, and uh, everybody was able to bring a little different piece to the table, and um, uh, yeah, it culminated in. Here we are, all around uh, again from different parts of different parts of the planet. Here on this little Zoom call that Jack has set up, and uh, you've been kind enough to host it. I I'm liking the narrative circle you guys have been taking us around. Well done. <laughs> uh, yes, Misha, this is the fun part. Now we are coming around to the final two parts. Andrew, can you introduce for everyone listening and watching? Uh, who is Helen Quigley and what should we know about her? Who is Helen Quigley? <laughs> Are you ready for this, Helen? Um, so no, no. About, uh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll give you the edited highlights. So um, I met Helen at Century. There's, there's a theme going here. <laughs> I'm sensing this. Um, but I was actually at Century with... Um, Nicholas Briggs and Richard Curtis doing a talk about how not to make radio drama, or rather how to make radio drama to a, a room full of actors and other producers and directors and so forth. And uh, Helen came up to me afterwards. And it turned out that we'd actually been at similar events preceding that and hadn't spoken to each other. Uh, but unfortunately, she came up and, and, uh, and, and, and approached me about... Uh, and her love of Blake seven. So she managed to wheel a, a, a box set, an audio box set of Blake seven, the audio adventures that we did. Um, and then she recklessly told me that she um, did BBC radio trails and she was rather good at it. 
and uh, she'd listen to our trails and she could do them better. And would I like her to show me how good she was at doing <laughs> trails? And, uh, and me never one to not look, you know, a gift horse in the mouth. So absolutely. Um, Dan Dare, we've just um, adapted for radio. How about doing a trail for that? Um, and so seven hours of uh, audio drama, she waded through and came back with a uh, fantastic trail. And from, and, thus was born a, a, a very beautiful working relationship and within two years of that maybe maybe a little less I um we got more we started working on more and more things together and I asked her to come and be part of B7 with me and help reshape and grow the company both in terms of what we we're doing with radio drama what we're doing in terms of indie film um and also venturing into the world of audiobooks and so when Misha um, came to me with Unsinkable um, and the possibility of uh, uh, needing some uh, someone to edit, do the dialogue edit and put it, put it together. I, I recommended that Helen got involved in that, although she's never forgiven me since because it was quite an, <laughs> epic, quite an epic task, to say the least. But, uh, yeah, so so <laughs> Helen is, is the, the beating heart of B7. It's the best way. And I and wouldn't be able to be seven wouldn't be what it is now without the partnership that Helen and I now have. I, I think I'm more Scotty in the engine room. It's I'm the one who says <laughs> you can't do that. It'll, it'll explode. Uh, <laughs> that costs too much. <laughs> and that's going to take days when I know it actually will take less than that. But it makes me look good. Mm, wonderful. And, and with that, Helen, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and one, let me know and anyone listening, watching what I might have missed in my introduction of uh, Jack Bowman that you could share with us. Uh, and then <laughs> secondly, if you could then start our conversation, which is going to move into what is an unsinkable in your words, and then maybe get some feedback from others after you've given not only a little bit uh, more about Jack, but your insights regarding unsinkable. Wow. That's a brief to follow, isn't it? Um, Actually, Jack, I, I, I've never actually met in person, I don't think, despite him being in London. This is the first time I met Jack was actually on Zoom. Um, and I think uh, we connected a lot like this and all of us had sci-fi backdrops. I think uh, I, uh, uh, Jack had gone with his, what have you got now? I can't see what that is. Oh, it's another, it's still the TARDIS. Okay. I've, got, I've gone McGann for tonight, yep. Okay, good. <laughs> I think Andrew had something Star Wars related and I, and I went with my personal favourite with the Stargate. So we just sat there and anoract. So um, one thing about Jack that I do know, and I'm uh, very happy to be uh, friends with him as a result, is is his love of sci-fi. So anyone who anyone who likes the sci-fi is good with me. Um, on Although Unsinkable... You, yeah, you, you, did, you, did, you did miss that me, me, you and Andrew have one connection right now on all our Zoom calls. One, one, we have one thing. Of course, yes. yes. We've all got Yodas. Yes. We've all got baby Yodas. We don't all, all have baby Yodas. I don't have a friggin' Yoda. Nobody gave me oh, the John, memo. John, yeah. John has a TARDIS mug. There's two camps here, clearly. It's the TARDIS and or Yoda, so that my Yoda is behind me. Yeah. Uh, no, grow, grow, grow. Oh, yeah, yes. There's nothing in it. Mine's in the background. Now, mine doesn't move. But no, uh, mine my, doesn't. Yeah, I was. Uh, this is where I can join you in one the sci-fi wonder, and then two going to my local. That's yeah. awesome. 
my good friend, Mr. Steve J. Ray, who, uh, who lives over in England, is going to freak out when I, I tell him about that scene. I saw this at the comic shop. The guy was unwrapping it from just getting it shipped. And I said, hey, what's that? And he goes, oh, these are new. We just got them in. And I said, I will be the greatest man in my wife's life at this very moment. So just wrap it up, put it in a bag. I don't care how much, yeah. just throw it on the tab. And yeah, she shrieked with glee. So I don't know yeah, if we need mine. to. Uh... That's exactly. <laughs> there he is. Hey, I couldn't be less So my thoughts are unsinkable. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's a tale of adventure on the high seas at, it, at its core. And, and um, yeah, bravery. Uh, camaraderie, uh, you know, a, a problem solved and, and almost an unsurmountable problem solved. And, and it's, it's genuinely fascinating and even more so because it's true. Mm. And I hadn't heard of it before. And uh, my, my father-in-law was, was in the Merchant Navy on the BP tankers, I think. And uh, he's, were you? <laughs> I mean, he's, this was, it might've been before your time, John, but it was probably in the 50s maybe oh. something like that 50s or 60s um but I, I don't recall him ever talking about it as a as a story or a legend from the days of the merchant navy so no i, I think it's yeah it's a really fascinating story and even working on the, the bits of the dialogue edit that i did that being the bare bones of the structure as it is at the moment you could you know you could really feel how difficult an experience and how intense it was and how it's a memory that lasted their entire lives mm. yeah mm. Yes, I was actually stunned when I was doing a little bit of research and discovered that there had actually been a movie made in 1943 called the San Demetrio London. That's by Charles Friend, yeah, San Demetrio London. And then I began discovering the story, which sounds like quite as you described it, Helen, so perfectly, a harrowing high adventure on the seas, a... Um, a mission that that has excitement that quickly turns into a bit of a survival story and with uh, quite some heroism displayed by so many involved. Yeah, I mean, it's a tale against, against all odds. I mean, they, they uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I love history and I particularly, I, I'm fascinated by the tales of heroism in the Second World War. So when I, when I read John's screenplay, it really hit a sweet spot straight away. It's, uh, it is an extraordinary tale of heroism. Uh, I, I knew about it um, because probably when I was young, I saw the movie, but also because I spent 13 years in, in the Merchant Navy as a deck officer. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of was part of the uh, history. It was part of the, the psyche of it. And, um, and I remember probably 15 years ago, I happened to be, um, I, I was in the marine insurance world by then in London and uh, the Merchant Navy Memorial is, is uh, just uh, up from Tower Bridge, Tower, the Tower of London, and it's just down from what was the Willis Building, which was the headquarters of Willis Insurance Brokers. And I remember just walking into there once and it's a beautiful you know, garden with panels underneath, but the panels, hundreds of them, bronze panels covered with the names of ships and underneath the names of the men who died. And um, I saw the panel for the San Demetrio, and I said, I remember something about that. And then I put it together. And one of the first things I did was I wrote a little piece called Take a Walk in a Charming Garden, which I did for a, a screenplay, you know, sort of type of screenplay or writing presentational um, uh, awards thing, uh, which went down quite well. 
Um, and actually, there's a bit of that in the final final version we've got. The bit where it's where part of the story takes place, it begins and ends in the Merchant Navy Memorial Garden. And there are, there are lines in there that comes from that very first thing that I wrote. Um, and so that just sort of was on the back of my mind. And after I wrote and made Six Years, Four Months and 23 Days with Misha, the, the, the short film you just saw the poster of, I thought to myself, I'd better write a, you know, a feature length film in case somebody asks, you know, oh, this is very good, what else have you got? And I thought I ought to write something really easy, cheap to make, single, single location, two people, make it for, you know, for peanuts. And instead I wrote The San Demetrio, uh, <laughs> the film version, which would cost at least 100 million to make because, you know, it's a massive on the water, tanks, massive special effects, huge cast, you know, blockbuster. Um, the opposite of what you set out to do. Exactly the opposite. But it was, just, <laughs> I realized, and, and I've written a lot, but each time I've started to write something, I've, it's always come from the back of my mind somewhere that, that it's a story I want to tell. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was a story I wanted to tell. And with a background in the Merchant Navy, plus my background in writing and acting, I felt it was something I could get, do justice to. Um, so that was one of the first feature for features I wrote. And I wrote different, different versions of it. And then it was when Jack and Misha and I started talking uh, I've mentioned this one and we looked at it and thought, well, maybe this could be a really good audio drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, John had actually, this is going to sound like the, the cliche part of the, uh, the story, but John had sent me a copy of the script and we got on, the family had come over, my son had refused to sleep. He, it was the first time in my life to be embarrassed because he's screaming and eventually I get him to sleep. I wanted a nap before I got to LA, I couldn't. So I went, you know what, I'll have a quick look at John's screenplay. And for like the last two hours of the flight into LA, I was hooked. I was just reading the screenplay page by page by page and just went, that's actually pretty good. We should have a chat about that when we catch up. So, um, yeah, so I took the script on a plane to LA and by the time I got off, I was a fan. So, that's, very, that's very Hollywood. It's very Hollywood, isn't it? Yeah. John had sent me uh, San Demetrio in a, in a few different iterations, including a, a space version um, and... I am almost ashamed and sorry to say, but again, it is very Hollywood to say that some of those had sat in my inbox, uh, deliberately left as unread because I had planned to get to them. But for just months, months tend into years, years tend into, I promise I'll read it one day, John, I will. It's just that, you know, things came up and we're, in fairness, we'd, we'd even worked on other things with each other since, but it was just the instigation to like, was there a reason? And actually that meeting turned out to be that reason because I was forced to I had to I I, I couldn't turn up the meeting not and not having not read the the script that we were all talking about so <laughs> I um uh, at that point you know of course that's a sort of delve in and then we all had our, our thoughts after that which I'm sure we'll, we'll go into more but um I think it's just even a thing of um you know anything and getting a project done it's just the the, the intentions are not out of, you know, some like, oh, I, I don't like you or I don't want to. It's just, a, it's just a case of, you know, what's in front of you and what, uh, what, um, uh, what the least resistance is sometimes and what, uh, what's forced to happen at that particular moment. Yeah. You owe me a fiver, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'll then know it over to you straight away. Thanks. And, and, then Misha, and then Misha sent me the script. I didn't think John was actually going to talk to me after I sent my notes back. Um. <laughs> no all good all good i mean honesty is the best policy even if you don't like it 
Mm. Um, so maybe I ought to tell you what the basis of the story is. That might be helpful. I was also just sort of curious <laughs> uh, how this had all sort of begun. And you've already introduced that idea so well for me before I got a chance to ask the question, actually, how, how the story developed. It appears to have uh, come from one piece, became something more in this feature length idea. But yeah, perhaps we should talk uh, a little bit about the San Demetrio and and what made it such sounds like to me, and I'm looking forward to uh, comparing my uh, expectations with the actual product, but what it was that turned it into such a compelling narrative and then uh, such a wonderful and, and highly celebrated audio story. So the story is this, the San Demetrio was a British cargo ship, a tanker, uh, carrying uh, aviation fuel for the Royal Air Force. Uh, and she loaded in Galveston, Texas in the uh, in October 1940, just after the really early days of the war and fairly early days of the Battle of the Atlantic where Germany's attempt to win the war against Britain by starving us into submission, by sinking as many of our ships as they could, our cargo ships. So she went up to uh, Nova Scotia to Halifax in Canada and they formed where, the, where a convoy of 38 ships was formed to be escorted across the North Atlantic by one elderly Royal Navy ship. The Royal Navy was stretched incredibly thin at that time. And uh, this, of course, was before America joined the war. And um, so this 38 ship set off across the North Atlantic, uh, guarded by uh, effectively um, a converted old passenger ship with some guns bolted on called the Jervis Bay. And uh, on the 5th of November 1940, the convoy was attacked by a German battleship called the Admiral Scheer, which was a, a radar, surface radar out, out hunting for this, for these ships. And the Jervis Bay, in order to give the convoy time to scatter and get away, charged the German battleship um, hopelessly, completely hopelessly, and was sunk within about 20 minutes or so with the loss of hundreds of lives. But their bravery um, gave the ships, a lot of the ships time to get, get away into what was the encroaching night. Uh, several ships was, were hit, and they were sunk. And then the uh, Abosha turned her guns on, on the uh, San Demetrio and she was hit and men started to be killed and she started to go on fire. So since they were sitting on top of 11,000 tons of highly volatile aviation fuel, Captain quite rightly gave the order to abandon ship. Uh, this crew, the crew, the remaining side of the crew got off into three lifeboats. Two of those lifeboats were picked up by other ships the next day, but one lifeboat with 16 men on board four injured, um, was not picked up and she suffered a horrendous storm and bone chilling cold um, in the northern reaches of the North Atlantic in, North, in, in November, which is not a place you want to be. Um, but they came across a ship and as they got closer, they realized it was their own ship. It was the San Demetrio and she was on fire and she was horrendously badly damaged uh, and burnt, burnt out. But they spent another night thinking about it, but eventually they decided that they had a choice of freeze or burn. Get back on board and burn to death or freeze in the lifeboat. And they decided to get back onto the, onto the San Demetrio, really just to use it as a bigger lifeboat. Um, and, but they got back on board, they managed to put the fires out. They had no navigation equipment, but they managed to get the engines working and the emergency steering, and they set out to get her home. And that's the story. Now, there's a second part of the story, which is that when they got home, there was a claim for salvage 
from the crew. So if you sal- if you salvage a ship, you're entitled to a you know a reward for doing so, generally paid by the insurance because they're very happy to see a ship you know saved. But it's never been done, or it's, you know, it's unheard of for a crew to claim salvage against their own ship. And that became a celebrated law case. So we, make, we move in the story between the courtroom, which uh, took place a couple of months later in January 1941, and, and what's going on the ship, and then what's going on back in London. So we have uh, the lead uh, character is second mate called, young second mate called Arthur Hawkins. He was the guy in charge. Um, and his wife was back in England, uh, pregnant at the time. And so we pick up her story as well. So there were these different branches of the story that are going on. And that's the setup, if you like. It's a very complete setup. Thank you for breaking down all of those different pieces for us and sort of introducing the history and, and also describing for anyone watching or listening what it will be like to uh, listen to this story because it appears to move through the different um, locations. I've always enjoyed actually when there is a legal side to a story and this is being you know, told within a courtroom, but you also have the opportunity to experience what that um, situation that's being told sort of dryly in a courtroom looks like in real life when it's actually happening and there's a context to uh, the things being said to each other. I mean, Telling someone you think we're in danger while you're standing on a street corner is one thing or in a courtroom, but telling someone you think we're in danger because the boat you're on is on fire and it's loaded with fuel, that's a completely different experience for others. So I, I like the fact that you're able to you know, introduce that and then and tell it through the audio. I, I'm curious now that we've got this story, how then does it move through everyone who we have on this call? What's the order of progression once we have the script once everyone had had the chance to learn about it and decide, okay, this is something we're all going to start working on. How then do you take this story and turn it into what we are all able to hear now? Who, who gets involved next? And, and what are the steps to getting to the actual part of uh, recording and finishing that process? Well, let, me just, that? let me just start that off and then the, the others can jump in um, and take over. But if the, basically what we agreed to, was the format should be around 11 episodes or 20 minutes each. That would be an appropriate way to start. So I broke the screen, the, the movie screenplay, actually the TV screenplay, which is a longer version because it included more of the court case into 11, into what seemed to be 11 episodes with, you know, which broke at the appropriate times. And then I started work on each episode. And as I finished each episode, um, they were looked at by Misha and Jack and Andrew with that, and they came back with their comments as to what they think was working or what wasn't working, and what with suggestions as how to improve it. And so it was an iterative process of writing it and rewriting it and attacking it in a different way. And one of the key things I think was we managed to work out how to do it without any narration, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a big move. Right, and that's and what <laughs> Seth, what you were talked about just there in terms of the the courtroom as well. We were able to use that. Uh, and it was something initially it was we'd done it another way through another character but it became apparent that we could do do it more seamlessly through the court you know the court is bringing up these different facts that happened and of course and it gives us it gave us a great way to be able to give a uh, a real way of getting across that exposition as opposed to just a voiceover that Robert McKee would have screamed at the rooftops for in the voice of Brian Cox 
Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's fair to say a lot, as you know, well, everybody knows who talks to me, I, I loathe the use of narration in, in audio. I find it a very lazy device. Um, and I think that the great thing that we hit upon was using the, the cult scene as the, as, the, as the narrative spine to the story. And that actually then removed the need of having that narration. And it could all be told dramatically. And therefore the rhythm, the dramatic rhythm of the piece worked a whole lot better. Um, and uh, I mean, narration has its place in audio drama sometimes, but, uh, but always to be used in, in, a, in a limited form. And in fact, Jack and I are talking about another project where the same conversation where it was like, oh. do we need this? No. Can we do this a better way and dramatically without narration? Mm. Yes. Um, so that was very much the case of, of, of Unsinkable. And also, John, you know, one of the, the early conversations we had was just to up the jeopardy. I mean, yes, it was based on truth, but we didn't have to be necessarily slavish to that truth. We wanted to add elements in that would um, uh, dramatically up the stakes. That's my pizza arriving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, and that's the cliffhanger right there. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and another, another thing I have to give uh, John and Misha credit for really listening to very, very early doors is that there was this trend right now because particularly, bear in mind this was pre-pandemic before audio drama sort of really had the, the rocket that it needed because um, of shutdowns and production on film and television and stuff. There was a trend where people were literally trying to get their screenplays made or their TV pilots made, and they would turn around to say, ah, oh, you, you do audio, you you know, we'll turn this into a podcast. And then people will love my podcast and I get my TV or screenplay made off the back of the podcast. Um, and it's a, it's a bit of a frustrating trend where basically people just sort of expect their screenplay lifted as is. So one of the things I think, you know, when we were having that meal, I said, look, you're really going to have to look at the script. You're really going to break this down. You can't just take your screenplay and make it a piece of audio. And to John and Misha's credit, they went off and they, they worked. Then they restructured and they, they, they switched around and they, they changed things to actually make it an episodic podcast scripted audio drama off the basis of that screenplay rather than do with a, what's a big mistake a lot of people make, which is just to take a screenplay and go, oh, we'll, we'll just record it on audio and job done. And then, then we get the TV deal off the back of that. So fair play to the boys. They actually sat there, they listened and, you know, they spent a good six, seven months reworking that script, didn't you? Yeah. And I found it a really challenging, but enjoy, increasingly enjoyable process is to take a scene, which is mostly visual and say, okay, how do we make this dramatically interesting and rewarding as an audio piece. And if I can give an example, uh, there's a moment uh, that the ship had a breakdown, engine breakdown before the attack and she had to stop and stop for engine repairs. And obviously there's an extremely nerve wracking moment. Mm -hmm. It stopped in the North Atlantic when there were U-boats around the place. And I had a scene where the captain comes down to the engine room and he just sort of knocks on the, knocks on a, 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 on a rail so that the engineers working below him can look up and see and he taps his watch. Say, mm -hmm. say how long, you know? And the chief engineer looks at his van and look at the and he holds up three fingers. And then the captain leaves. So not a word is spoken in that scene. So to rewrite that in such a way that the captain can come down and get that information and make it dramatic. And in fact, it is John Malkovich who's the one who calls up three hours. Um, I, I think you'll enjoy how that scene works out when when you when you hear it. And we had to do that for every single scene. 
right. so yeah. I'm finding moments of, of show don't tell but for audio or hear don't tell you know coming, coming out through it and and just the follow-on as well then just from what you said jack i think something john and i had you know like you said there was this trend of all of a sudden oh we can't shoot anything what are we going to do and so maybe there were a whole bunch of people that that said hey let's let's make uh, make things as audios and some some of which we've seen seen the result of that um there there are no two ways about it you know this would be this will still be at some point i think a wonderful uh thing in the visual medium and uh it's something we still want to pursue but that didn't take away from the fact that we wanted to try and make this the best audio piece it could be right and that just period you know everything else on top that's great but just approach this medium for what it is first and you know the team we've got now you know we've got some of the leading people in the world you know as part of this um or adding to that and they're excited about uh, about it solely as an audio as well um and it's been um it, it i don't see it as less or more than i just see it as different and something that um is exciting as well we get to push the boundary of something we get to work you know in in, in 3d audio having waves that are going to feel like they're 80 feet high above people coming over and down uh create something really immersive and um you know, when you get to push the, the front of something, it's, it's always an exciting place to be. I think the, the other thing with, to remember about audio, and a lot of people who come into it think, oh, this is an easy gig. You know, it's cheap. Um, oh, it's certainly, yes, it's cheaper than film and TV. Um, is it's, it's its own narrative uh, uh, its own narrative format. It, you know, Theatre has its own form. Audio has its own form. Television, drama has its own form. You know, film has its own form. Um and one of the big mistakes that is made in audio is um, too much exposition, is, is not being able to tell the story with, with the economy, with the dialogue, uh, without drifting into your, your character sitting out, well, now this is happening because X, Y, and Z. And um, I think that's, that's actually a credit also to the process and John taking on board all, all, all the, the various notes he was getting from different directions. But there's an economy. There's an economy to the way the story is told and there's, a, a, there's an authenticity to how the characters speak and interact with each other uh, with, without it being exposition heavy. And uh, I think, uh, and, and add to that, what you can then do in terms of audio, in terms of the richness, the, the, the oral landscape, and how you can feed through that, through the use of music and sound design and whatever, you can feed a person's imagination. You can imagine a $200 million movie, but it's an audio movie. And it's something that many aspire to do. Some do it really well. Dirt Mags is, is probably at the top of his game in terms of that, who's most recent. Uh, example is is Sandman, which he continues to do, and he was certainly a huge influence to me when I got in uh, first started. But uh, yeah, I, I think in some of that description, one of my favourite moments is actually quite early on in Unsinkable, is uh, Captain Waite is on the stand in the courtroom, and uh, he is asked to describe what life on the ship is like, and he just goes in the kitchen, in the in the uh, in the engine room on out on deck you know what everyone is doing and there's little scenes mm -hmm. of uh, each of the characters at work and talking about what they're doing and it's a really nice overview of how the ship operates and what the characters are doing and what they're like and that's a good example of showing audio without yeah. having any exposition 
you can imagine like what you're talking about right there you can imagine mm-hmm. and actually we, it's funny we did the spawning session on that with Ben recently to do to go into some of that detail you imagine a pan going through the walls across you imagine the shot as it's happening but it's done right it's amazing what your mind will paint if you give it the direction yes and that's what i was doing as i sort of listened back over it it was it worked really well mm-hmm. I, re- I remember i was teaching some uh, young people uh about you know uh, you know, audio and like how it was, it was going to be awesome and it was going to be the future and um you know someone turned around and said uh, to me uh, why, why is audio so great and i said because it's the most visual medium it is that, that exists the pictures it paints in there the mind's eye it's it, it, it's singular it's absolutely unique in the the imagery that you can create in a listener's mind particularly if you really work on the fact that podcasting as a delivery method is so intimate it gets in your head you know it's not like radio where you could potentially treat it as wallpaper someone is actually asking to go into this world with you and uh you know this is an incredibly exciting project which the world that has been built is so immersive so thrilling and exciting that you know like like andrew says you're going to see a 200 million dollar movie in front of your imagination Mm-hmm. and you know not for 200 million dollars it's not cheap not even the tea, not not even the tea budget not even the tea budget um <laughs> and interesting yeah. just to add to that a lot of our actors i mean so our lead actors two of them are, are, you know john Markovich and, and brian cox had grown up doing radio and they loved the medium and that's re- really why they did it because they got it instantly and they and they they really like enjoy doing it. I think Brian Cox spent eleven of his first years as an actor on a radio show on a on a weekly radio show. Um, so they got it instantly. But a lot of our actors who hadn't done a lot of of, uh, of this kind of work, they were all said the same thing, which is you just get into it. You create it yourself. You're not worried about you don't have to do green screens or makeup or costume or hair or standing around for hours while they set up lights. You just make it yourself. Mm. That's why I think that so many of the performances we were so blown away by is because you could see when we were at them on Zoom, but you could see and hear the actors just get into it, mm-hmm. understand and create their characters and the circumstances that they were in and deal with it. It was a really, really fun process to do. Like you said, we, there's, no, there's no bullshit, there's nothing in between, just you and the mic, and it doesn't allow for anything else to hide. It's just the truth of that sound, and it uh, it becomes very it's a very pure medium for we, it. We, we were, we were having a conversation today when we were doing another show remotely and mm-hmm. it just came up in, in conversation that some actors come to radio thinking that ah, it's just a breeze anyone can do it and suddenly discovering it's a completely different acting muscle and not all actors get it and can do it and can immerse themselves as in that their voice is their is their is their tool for this they can't have got any other part of their body to sell that performance it's all about the emotion they 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 mm. give in their vocal performance mm-hmm. and uh yeah i mean we uh, i mean that's when you think of the, the 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 scope of the cast we've got in terms of very successful and established film actors and television actors and theater actors and um, and and they they really embraced embraced this, and it, you'll you'll see by the, the the quality of the performance and the authenticity of the performance, and that's key mm-hmm. for audio to work, audio drama to work. Mm-hmm. And we did this, Seth, largely with uh, you know in an animation style. So you know the majority of the actors uh, are working in an isolated fashion, which of course worked for COVID. 
uh, very well, but it meant that, you know, the imagination has to be there for the, for the environment they're in. And, you know, John and myself have to, to give, you know, very specific direction of the, the, the feel of the scene, the energy, what's coming back and forth, and then hope that the hundred different performances all get pieced together and uh, you have coherent scenes that actually flow and, uh, and go back and forth. And for the most part, um, it's really worked outstandingly well. Um, we, had, we had one set of actors um, in, uh, in Rupert Vansittart and, um, uh, and oh Leo. Leo. Who, uh, who we had together yeah. and it made sense. So their scenes are all together and they were able to at Soundhouse and uh, it, uh, it was really nice to have them as a pair, but by no means was it, uh, was it essential, but it, it certainly adds to it. And I, I think once we're out of, um, once we're out of COVID, uh, I think everybody will be keen to be able to have some human interaction again, but I don't think it's detracted from what, uh, what the overall um, you know, piece uh, has been able to bring. One of the advantages of doing it with every every single person we recorded, uh, you know, by Zoom remotely in in a studio, apart from those pair, everyone was on their own Uh, in all all over the place. Some in LA, some in London. We had Prague, Prague. Natalie Emmanuel was in Prague, Um, Boston, uh, which is where John Malkovich was. Brian Brian Cox was upstate Massachusetts. Um, You know, so. But in each case, you're taking each single performance and you're getting the take you want that is truthful and appropriate. Uh, whereas if you've got five, six people around a microphone, you might get four of them doing a really good job and one of them's not quite there, but you'll live with it. But in each, in each instance, we were able to get exactly the performance, pretty much exactly the performance we were after from each person on each line. And I think it's starting to show as we, you know, Helen's amazing work in putting together the, uh, the soundscape for, for all the actors um, and starting to listen to that. It's like, you're not hearing a false note or very rarely are you hearing a false note and then thinking, well, let's see if there's another take we can use. But almost all of it was like, yeah, what we've got here is what we want. Yeah, the only challenge, sorry, yeah, go, you know, go ahead. Uh, okay, no, I was going to say the only challenge with, with oh, sorry, well, the only challenge, lots of challenges about doing it remotely, but actors generally like to feed off other actors and their energy in the performance. And so one of, one of the challenges particularly is making sure if you're doing everything individually, you, you, you've got to match and, and doing them separately in different days and different weeks, but you've got to, if they're all meant to be in a scene together, they've got to match that energy of that sure. scene. Yeah. And that takes an awful lot of, of concentrated and focus from the directors to ensure that they make sure that each actor hits that beat. Because otherwise, once you, when you get back to yeah. putting it all together and editing, if it doesn't match and someone's off on that energy or someone's exactly. feels a bit... Exactly. Know, something as subtle good. as the pace at which somebody is delivering something back at or the, or the volume yeah. or the amplitude. I mean, so many little variabilities, right? And so there are some cases where it's, hey, take one of this line, take five of this line from this yeah. person, Take one of this word. I mean, there are some takes that, you know, have, uh, have had some thorough massaging, uh, to say the least. But it, uh, when it comes together, it comes together well. And it's like the equivalent of, you know, close-up. Here's your close-up. Here's your close-up. Here's your close-up. Each of those. And, uh, and then putting them all back together in the big jigsaw puzzle and um, arranging it until it, um, it hopefully flows beautifully. It's an oral Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Rick's Cube is probably a better analogy that's fair to say yeah. well, I, I had an analogue for putting the dialogue together and it was, uh, it was like doing stop motion with audio because <laughs> you know, yes. move yeah. it a bit 
get another bit, move it again, listen to it. And I, 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 not for every single scene, but certainly with a lot scenes with a lot of characters, I would spend hours on it and then go, I'll listen to that back and go, it's 20 seconds long. What, what have I been doing for hours? And it was just <laughs> literally right. that, moving little bits and pieces to make sure it all fitted together. I was going to say, it's like a Rubik's cube, but in three dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's that like, like you can listen to something a hundred times and then you, you, you come away from it. And it's only then you can, you can see it with some sort of subjectivity after a while. Right. It's like, it's the, having virgin eyes or virgin ears on something that's more, is more appropriate is, uh, is the key. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's amazing what a few, you know, frames or, or, or in this instance, you know, milliseconds one way or the other will make um, just uh, in the subtlest, subtlest of changes. Mm. Yeah. Now I'm curious because one I, I think I had probably 10 or 15 follow-up questions that I was going to, you know, drop in, but then someone else would pick up and I'm like, never mind, they've got something better going on. Wait, <laughs> never mind. That sounds better than what I was going to ask. But I am still going back just a little bit with the idea of, you know, we've got the story. Now we've gathered actors. We're working on the process. Uh, Helen, I, I heard something really interesting described. I think it was, John, you were saying it. Uh, the idea of what she was creating with soundscapes. And I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit more about soundscapes, because uh, it, it draws to mind for me initially that description of walking through the ship with the captain and seeing all of the different environments or seeing, apologies, hearing all of the different environments and understanding what those cues are. And the idea of picturing it, I think Misha, as you described it as a camera moving along and, and panning along, but doing it so uh, in, audio uh, description that allows the ear to then take in the information and create that wonderful imagination uh, realm that you then sort of agree to step into. And you're creating that, Helen, with your uh, soundscapes. Uh, well, now not, not, not so much with the, the soundscapes, because that's the next stage that Misha is now working on with Ben. Yeah, I, I was just working with the dialogue. Um, so I was, like I said, I was doing a skeleton dialogue edit. And as, um, as Misha was saying, some of this was to my preference, some of it was, well, the majority of it was based on what I was given and the favourite takes and what the log sheet gave me. Occasionally it would was a, I'm going to put that there, but I'm not sure. And I think when Misha listens to it, he'll probably move it around or he might like, you know, I was sort of conscious that my decisions weren't necessarily the ones that he would be the final ones made and the ones he and John would choose. Um, but certainly mentally, when I was listening back, to just the dialogue. I, I could hear the ship moving. I could hear the waves outside. I could hear the mm -hmm. wind and I could hear bells ringing. You know, I could hear the sound of the courtroom as it overlapped with the scenes. It, you know, it was it was in yes. my head and I did have to resist the urge to go dipping in my sound effects library and just, you know, dropping a couple of things in. Yeah, but, but the spaces are still there on many occasions. And it's almost as if it's like, it, it really, mm. it sounds very artsy-fartsy, but it starts telling you what to do. The, the, the edit after what tells you the gaps. It tells you, oh, here's, here's what should happen here. Here's what should happen here. And, you know, it was a, it was a hell of a Rubik's Cube to assemble. And, and so Andrew's point about ensuring that the performances are match each other in terms of location and what's going on. One of the things I was very careful to do when directing, and Misha and I co-directed every, every scene, every actor together. Um, my primary job was to make sure the actors knew at every second of the day 
where they were, if they were on the ship or if they were in a lifeboat or if they're in a courtroom or they're in London, exactly what the circumstance of what the environment was. How noisy is it in the engine room, in that bit of the engine room? How was it like when you're on the bridgeway? What's it like when you're in the galley? That's going to be a metal door closing, not a wooden door. He's mm. standing on metal plating, not on, not on wooden boards. You know, so that the actors were able to respond knowing themselves what their environment was. And as the soundscape is, which is a pair I should be using now, as the sound design is being developed, you know, I'm, I'm saying to our amazing sound designer, um, Ben, who is a BAFTA and Oscar winner for Whiplash, um, this, uh, you know, one of the notes I gave him is the ship, when, when this tanker, the tanker Mitra, when she's rolling at sea, she'll be taking about 15 seconds to go back and forward and back again. That's how long it takes for that ship to make that move. So the, the, that, that's the noise period we're going to need for it to sound right. Um, and so the, all those things, were, you know, I was taking care of that. Misha has a really good ear for truthfulness and performance. So if he was feeling someone was being a bit actuary or wasn't in it enough, you know, that was Misha kind of, I think you can, you're on an eight, you need to take it to a 10, or you're on a 10, you need to come down to a five. So between the two of us, we were kind of looking after those things. And this brings us to the end of episode number 85 of Storytelling with Seth. I hope you laughed as much as I did. It was a great conversation with the Unsinkable team. Only part one. There's still so much more. Part two coming next week. You'll want to be right back here at Storytelling with Seth to hear the second half. Find out what more we can say about those last comments Misha was making about binary and how there's so much more of this unsinkable story for you to explore. And in the meantime, on the evening of February 19th, go to YouTube, type in Seth Singleton Storyteller, type in the Unsinkable Team interview, or find me on Twitter as One More Singleton and ask me, hey, I heard there was a YouTube link, because I'm telling you right now, there's a YouTube link. And when you do, I'll let you know, if you haven't already found it, where you can see video of this conversation, catch all of the highlights and so much of what was suggested, like how many of us actually had a Yoda doll, who has an amazing Star Wars collection. What does that TARDIS in the background really look like? And what else can you spy with your eye that maybe was never even hinted at during the conversation? Enjoy it all. Come back next week. Part two is on its way. There is more in store. And when you tune in, I'll be right back with the Unsinkable Team, part two, and much more storytelling with Seth. Thanks for listening. I can't wait to share my next story, which is part two of this interview with you. 